Hi, and welcome to the BookNet Canada podcast. I'm Zelina Albi, the community manager here at BookNet. In this episode, I'll be talking with Andrew Piper, an associate professor in McGill University, where he's also the director of TextLab, a digital humanities laboratory focused on using computational approaches to study literature and culture. Since we're all about using data to better understand books, publishing, and the readers who love them, we jumped at the chance to have Andrew on the podcast so he can share some of the findings from their research. He'll be talking about the patterns they found after analyzing a decade's worth of bestsellers and prize winners, how the lab's findings can be applied in the real world, and what else we can learn about books by using quantitative analysis. So let's start with how this whole project started. This project, it actually began when we were uh, starting to look at uh, what makes uh, a novel win a prize. So our first question wasn't initially into bestsellers, but more about whether we could predict uh, prize-winning novels. Um, and as we started going down that road, we began to think about um, prizes as kind of one way that novels are socially important or socially valued, and bestsellers then become a kind of another way of looking at that problem. So for us, uh, what we really began to think more about was a larger kind of literary field of, of what we might call sort of social value, uh, so how books become important to people and in different ways. Um, so winning a prize is one way that that's true. Uh, selling a lot of copies is another way. Um, and there might be other kind of metrics that one could, could come up with to think about um, how books become important uh, uh, culturally. Um, so that's kind of where we started. And I, I think that's been an important background for the stuff that we're finding and the questions we're asking. So what we're really interested in is how these how these groups relate to each other. Um, not in any kind of absolute sense, but more in a, in a relative sense. So we looked at a sample of uh, about 200 uh, bestsellers of, from the past decade, and these were the uh, best uh, works on the bestseller list for the longest period, aggregate period of time. Uh, and again, this is in an American context. We were using the New York Times bestseller um, and uh, that ranges from books that have just been, you know, strongly, strongly present uh, for several hundred weeks, um, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, for example, um, down to books that have been uh, there only for about nine or ten weeks. So the range is quite strong, and, and one of the things we're learning is that there's probably kind of subgroups within this bigger category called bestsellers. Um, not all bestsellers are alike, and, and some do different things, and that can connect a little bit with uh, with just how present or how popular those those books are. But so that was that was our sample was drawn from the New York Times bestseller list, um, about 200 novels. We have a overall collection of a couple thousand that we compare those to within a larger context uh, of different types of writing to understand them a little bit better. So when we when we began to look at this and began to compare best-selling novels um, to sort of their prize-winning counterparts, uh, what we might call sort of more serious fiction, uh, the the things that we found um, were often principally related to uh, being more people-centered, really. I mean, it's kind of generally speaking. So there's a lot more dialogue. There's about 50% more dialogue in, in best-selling novels than in prize-winning novels. Um, there's uh, considerably more characters, probably about 30% more characters we found. Um, and a lot of the grammatical formulations revolve around people that are unique to bestsellers. So you just see a lot more um, proper names and verbs attached to each other, whereas in serious literature, nouns will do a lot more of the work. So these kind of abstractions or objects, um, things that we're describing or thinking about. And so you know, if you're giving advice to people about how to write a bestseller, um, really 
what you what you really want to focus on is orient all of as much of your writing as possible um, around people and around the experiences of people, the way they interact with each other and the way they do things in the world. That was probably the most important thing. Um, we also found kind of very clear thematics too, which are most people are sort of familiar with intuitively when they look at bestseller lists. So a lot more focus on crime and and legal dramas, um, a lot more technology focused. Um, and one of the things that surprised us that that came out in the, over the course of the research um, was something that probably would be less. Uh, intuitively clear to, to readers or to people setting out to try and write a, write a novel um, is the emphasis on time. That was something that we found as a very strong predictor. Uh, so serious literature um, tends to be much more focused on things in the past, uh, much more retrospective, much more nostalgic, um, whereas best-selling writing tends to be much more written to the moment. So the time frames of bestsellers really are like the single day, so you know, tonight, tomorrow, yesterday, this afternoon. They'll mention specific time frames, next, now. There's a sort of vocabulary of urgency uh, that drives the action of a bestseller, whereas uh, serious literature tends to be much more reflective and, and, and based in the past. Can you talk a little bit to the, the purpose and the goal of this kind of data analysis? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think we have, I think we have different different aims, or I, you know, personally have kind of different interests. Um, some of this is related to my own background. So I, my background was actually more in the history of reading, history of books uh, field. And so my last book, uh, which is called Book Was There, um, was really about trying to understand how reading has changed over time, depending on different types of reading technologies. Um, and so I was really drawn to computation. Um, as just a sort of new way of engaging with the same documents that have always been interesting to me, which are um, literature. Um, and so that's kind of where I started. And uh, so my background is in literary studies, not in computer science. And I've gradually kind of learned and gotten more comfortable with the computational side of things. Um, and it's really a, a kind of process of translation to um, begin to figure out how do we map the questions that we traditionally ask about things like novels or poetry um, how can we use uh, computation to try and understand those things in, in kind of meaningful ways? Um, in terms of what we're hoping to do, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's it has sort of two aspects. One is um, I think we're we're addressing a, a big evidence gap in our field. Um, so traditionally, if we want to make assessments about large categories like a period, you know, romanticism or modernism or the 20th century. Um, or a genre like the novel, um, there's really only so many we can read. And so I think you know we're actually quite adept at, at generalizing from a small set of examples, but we really don't know how well um, those generalizations hold up. So on the one hand, it's really a kind of research-based, let's bring more evidence into our discussions uh, as a field. And I think computation gives us a way to do that. And I think it's very, very important from the research perspective. Um, I think in terms of for readers and, you know, sort of uh, you know, students, readers, people who kind of are interested in literature um, and reading, um, I think computation gives us kind of different way of thinking about books. Um, it can be more analytical and obviously more quantitative. Um, and that's important. That is to say, you know, books have very strong quantitative dimensions. Um, this is, this is, Kind of that—that's what they're composed of. Words repeating themselves over and over again, and and that's in some sense how 
how they become meaningful to us. And so I think what's interesting about computation is it lets us see those dimensions of text, um, which using, again, our traditional methods, um, we really uh, couldn't use. Um, and so it, it, it kind of profiles a different aspect of, of culture and, and creativity that, that really interests me. But what about practical applications? Um, some, an article in The Globe recently mentioned that your lab has a 75% prediction rate for bestsellers. So could publishers, in theory, use your findings to choose or commission manuscripts that have a high probability of becoming bestsellers? Yeah, so I think we, I mean, we kind of see different audiences for this kind of research. So uh, I think publishers uh, are one natural audience. Um, I think writers are another, which I can talk about in a little bit, and, and so are readers. Um, so in terms of publishers, I'm, I'm, I, it, it may be the case that some publishers are beginning to um, uh, experiment with this, uh, this kind of work. Uh, I haven't heard much about it. Um, I'd be curious to know the extent to which it has become active within publishing circles. I, I'm sort of surprised it hasn't. Um, it makes sense that um, having a more analytical understanding of one's backlist or even commissioning new books um, is just a really practical way to go about predicting whether something um, may catch uh, fire with the public. And we know there are a lot of extrinsic factors that go into making a bestseller, not least of which whether the person has already written a bestseller. Um, but we also know from this research that there are a lot of intrinsic factors. There are a lot of aspects that are very predictable about uh, whether a novel um, will or will not be a bestseller. And, and, and having that information can, you know, as a publisher, it could be very useful for uh, helping select manuscripts from your from your submissions and figuring out how to uh, gauge your advance or, or predict market, you know, what, to sort of make judgments about the marketing budget that should go with something. So, you know, it's not it's not going to change everything, but I, I suspect it could be a very useful tool in trying to make assessments about where to make these investments and to make choices which have traditionally been sort of aesthetic or intuitive. And I think data can can once again be very, very helpful in that vein. It does seem like publishers already try to do that kind of looking at the industry, see what's working and trying to replicate that, but they don't have much accurate data or anything really hard to pin down to really make those predictions based on. So this would be a way of making it a little more scientific, but in tandem with obviously other factors going into those, that decision making. I think what they haven't been able to do yet really successfully is get inside the books. You know, I, I have no doubt there's all sorts of metrics which um, try and look at readerships or social media or, you know, all sorts of things, uh, whatever the genre or keywords that might be associated with the book, um, the author's background, you know, these kinds of things. And, and I'm sure those are all very useful ways of trying to think about how a book might do. Um, and what this kind of research, what our research really starts to let people um, begin to study is, you know, what's going on inside that book? Which, which books is this book going to connect up with? Which types of readers is this book going to connect with based on what it's talking about? Um, and I think that's a really, really powerful new tool to think about how to reach readers. Do you think your research could ever be extended to any of those external variables? Well, I think it, I think they're they're definitely there, and in fact, what makes studying um, contemporary literature in some ways more interesting or or dynamic than historical um, literature, which is also one of my focuses, is because that um, uh, extrinsic or sort of social data we might call it um, is just so much more available and abundant and and, and changing. So. 
you know, we've in our lab we've talked a lot about you know what happens when you start to add in um, features about social media, so you know, good read scores, good read ratings, and and again, not just quantitative things like ratings numbers or how many reviews there are, but actually, what are those reviews saying? Um, what are they focusing on, and what is that telling us about what readers are looking for? So there's a lot of information there too that 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 could be mined using the same kind of techniques. And so when you begin to connect up these features, you know, the book has these kind of topics or tendencies or aspects that it's focusing on. Um, and we know readers are kind of interested in these types of focuses and features and so forth. You, you really can get a, a more robust picture of how, again, how a book is going to connect with readers, what kind of audiences it's going to be most suitable for, how large those audiences are. So, yeah, I think I think understanding the inside of books is a, is a piece of the puzzle, but the same techniques can give you a really rich portrait, I think, also of your of, of readerships, which are getting more public and, and, and visible. You know, the, the, the old days, the, the myth was the sort of lonely reader, silent on a couch, and you didn't know anything about that person. Um, I think people are much more public and, and invested in sharing their reading experiences, and that obviously gives um, all of us more of an understanding about, uh, about what motivates readers, what, what makes readers enthusiastic, what makes them get attached to books. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, e-book or um, e-reader manufacturers are already collecting a lot of that data on how people read books, what they're reading, when they stop reading something, how quickly they're reading, things they highlight. So there's definitely, we're getting a larger segment of data to look at. So your research on the bestsellers uh, focused on American bestsellers or ones that were on the New York Times fiction list. do you have any research or speculation on variance between countries? I mean, obviously, we would be interested in Canadian bestsellers, um, but also maybe nonfiction or juvenile titles. It's a very good question. Um, one of the things we're finding is that the Canadian bestseller list uh, tracks, um, depending on which ones you're looking at, but the ones we've looked at so far seem to track quite closely with the U.S. ones. Um, which probably won't come as a surprise to many listeners. Um, there were a few slight differences, but overall, they they really seem to be to be fairly close to one another. Um, we don't uh, know too much about the rest of the world, which is actually a, a kind of new um, pilot project we're trying to get off the ground to figure out ways to study those differences because I think it is a very interesting question about um, different cultural orientations to best-selling writing um, and how different that is. But we haven't uh, gone too far on that road, and right now we're we're focusing exclusively uh, on fiction. Um, Can you identify patterns changing over time? Um, It sounds like, I mean, you had a data set for a decade and you identified patterns from those. But it would be interesting to extrapolate the data in some way to see how things might be changing over time. Yeah, we, we became really interested in this, and and so far, uh, honestly, we haven't seen much uh, change. <laughs> so we looked at this past year. So our data set uh, stopped in 2014, so then we looked at 2015. And uh, if anything, we saw the most dominant trends from the previous decade only getting stronger. So more crime, more violence, uh, more legal drama, 
and a lot more technology. In fact, it was really the technology that seemed to be um, the, the, the features that jumped out the most. So more screens, more texting, more phones, um, more videos, uh, anything you can think of that has to do with communications technology seemed to be even more prevalent this past year than, than in previous years. One of the other, I mean, I feel like we are interested in digging a little bit further down into that past decade to see if that itself breaks up by time. As I said before, I, I think it probably is more of an example where you're going to find different types of writing within the best-selling group that aren't going to be quite so much tied to time. I've, I've heard some people say things along the lines that, you know, best-selling writing is very much of its moment. Um, what interests me about the uniformity of the of the features we're finding, the continuity, is either that moment is longer than we think about, you know, year to year, um, may not be the best time frame, or whether there's just a lot more uh, sort of thematic and stylistic stability to bestsellers than than we've previously previously thought. So that's something we want to we want to look more into. Because mm -hmm. I guess the I would think that major social movements or current events or the zeitgeist would affect this, these um, these patterns, but maybe that would be something that would be more applicable to say nonfiction titles and things in fiction are, as you said, just steadier. It's possible. I, I again, I wonder whether the time frames when we think about these sort of historical moments, whether actually we often register them in in, in broader scales, so that a decade um, may be too small of a window almost, and that really these things happen in 20 or 30 year cycles. Um, I, right now, what it really looks like is that kind of CSI effect, <laughs> um, the sort of just detective, technology-based, action-driven uh, drama story. Um, even when you reframe it as a historical novel or put some other window dressing on it, that's really what continues to jump out. Um, and that hasn't gone anywhere. That just seems to be really dominant. And obviously, from what we know from popular culture, it's only getting stronger, too. So, Well, if you can collect data for the next century or so, I, I think that would be fascinating if I'm around to see that. <laughs> Me too. Uh, so I'd like to talk a bit about um, something I read recently about uh, a challenge the lab put towards writers in Quebec where you had them write short stories based on the guidelines produced by this research. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about that, about what the, uh, the mission was behind that, what the idea, and what it was like reading those stories? Yeah, the idea was actually generated uh, in a conversation with uh, this year's Giller Prize winner, Andre Alexis. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, you may or may not have read on my blog, but I had the strange honor of actually predicting this year's Giller Prize winner but then when I went ahead and, and read uh, the novels on the shortlist, uh, I changed my answer because I thought the committee would never vote for his novel um, because it's very challenging. It's a wonderful book. It's completely interesting, um, but it's very experimental. And so I just I, I didn't see it happening. Um, and so I went ahead and and, and reconfigured the algorithm uh, to take into account extreme outliers. And, and, and that meant uh, it ended up predicting a, a different novel. So. I had this very sort of dubious distinction of getting it right and then using my own judgment to to ruin my my own success. Uh, probably not an un sorry. Go ahead. Oh, the data doesn't lie. Yeah, well, it's probably not not an un unfamiliar story to many people. Um, but you know what it really tells us. This is maybe a, a side story, but what it really tells us is, um, you know, what we're what we're doing is we're modeling 
um, human behavior. And we can do that in many different ways. And so I had an initial model trying to understand um, which novel might be successful based on how different it was from previous year's winners. So say the idea was they may be looking for something that's fresh and new. Um, and then I had a kind of second model where I thought about committee behavior, and I said, oh, well, but they won't vote for something that's really too different. So I added another kind of filter into the algorithm. Um, and so what we always have to keep reminding ourselves is, you know, that, that data is not human independent. Um, it's very much uh, tied to our values and our judgments and our beliefs about how the world works. And those beliefs can be more or less correct. And in my case, it started as a better model and got worse uh, as I thought about it more. Um, but it's an important kind of thing to keep in mind. Um, so on the on the idea of the Devoir challenge, so he uh, we began corresponding about this, and uh, Alexei was so he expressed a lot of interest in this bestseller research, and he said, you know, I'd, I'd really like to learn more about it, and and I initially thought he wanted to know how to sell more books, um, and you know maybe a prize wasn't enough for him or something like that, and 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 he corrected me, and he said, no, no, this is really a creative exercise. I, I want to use it as an opportunity to think about writing a novel and what the implications would be for me as a writer to try and write like a bestseller. I thought that was a really interesting idea um, and also really inspiring for me that this kind of research could be useful for creative writers. Um, we, I hadn't anticipated that and, and I thought that was um, a really nice feature. And so as the word began to travel around and we ended up talking with the books editor at, uh, at Le Devoir, um, they got super interested into it and wanted to ask some uh, Quebec writers if they wanted to participate. And, and they jumped at the opportunity. I think people had a, had a lot of fun with it. And again, for me, it was just a really nice sign that, that again, data is not this kind of empirically cold analytical thing, but can also be um, very creative and generative. Did you read all the stories? What was it like reading them? Yeah, they're 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 fun. I mean, most of them were um, ironic to a degree, so they were very self-conscious about trying to write like a bestseller. Uh, so the task was, you know, we gave them this sort of cheat sheet of like this: these are the features you should try and emphasize, um, and they had to write these short stories along those lines. And then we went ahead and kind of rated them, you know, said how well could we predict whether this thing would be a bestseller or not. Um, and the two things that jumped out at me: one was uh, most people failed, <laughs> which maybe from their point of view was a good thing. Um, but, uh, the stories were also, like I said, they were, they were sort of parodies or, or ironic. Um, but they also at some level were in many ways about, uh, some, some aspect of identity, something that they were uncertain about the, the protagonists in each of the stories were, were upset or unstable about something, whether one character was, uh, was a transgender character. Another one was. Uh, imagining herself in some sort of like Star Wars-like fantasy, but it was actually a sort of conflict with her parents. Um, another person was uh, a p potentially murderous inheritor of a big estate. Um, and they, they each kind of wrestled with uh, something that they couldn't fully understand. Um, the one I liked the most was about a, a writer who couldn't finish, uh, finish her own story. Um, and she was wrestling with these constraints that, that clearly sounded like the tables we had sent along. <laughs> and so it, it clearly influenced some of their creative uh, creative thinking. <laughs> interesting. Uh, well, it definitely sounds like a very interesting challenge for the participating writers and any other writers who would want to do something similar. Um, so it serves writers. Uh, what about readers? Could this research be used to benefit them? 
We think so. We think so. I mean, I think the the idea is, as I was saying before, that that we're hoping to serve uh, different populations with this. So, you know, it could be interesting for industry to to have access to this information. It's hopefully going to be interesting for for creative writers uh, to think about their writing, to think about the markets that they might want to be writing for, the audiences that they might want to be writing for, and to learn more about those audiences and those audience expectations. Um, and I think we're also hoping this sort of a new aspect that I've become recently more interested in is thinking about that kind of reader experience. Um, and I think traditionally we thought about books as these kind of blank slates, um, you know, these sort of pristine objects and you read it and you have this very imaginative engagement with the text and it's very absorptive and you sort of lose yourself in the book. Um, and I think that's one kind of reading and it's certainly an important one. Uh, but there are, are many other ways that we are asked to read and that we need to read, um, sometimes in educational settings, sometimes in workplace settings, and, and that can be much more analytical. Um, and I think these kinds of uh, tools, this kind of data, this kind of research can actually be really um, useful at that level. So, you know, you can imagine in an educational setting, whether it's in secondary school or even at the, at the higher level of higher education, where um, instead of just this kind of blank slate, this kind of clean text, um, what students are presented with is a little more analytical uh, overview of the text. So if it's a secondary school, you're providing students with uh, character lists that they can annotate, or maybe those characters are already annotated with, um, with kind of words or uh, themes that are associated or values that are associated with those characters. It creates the social network so you can have an understanding of who's connected to whom and where much of the social tension in the story lies, um, or even focusing on, on distinctive vocabulary or phrases or stylistic features that are unique to that book. Um, it, it gives students a way into the book that is more analytical and self-conscious um, as a kind of conversation starter. Uh, rather than hoping that they just have these ideas on their own, which as someone who's you know, been in education for over a decade now, I know doesn't happen very successfully all by itself. And so we're ho really hoping that you know, adding these features into the reading experience isn't really, for me, a distraction as much as it provides new kinds of insight and kind of conversation starters for beginning to think critically and analytically about, a, about something you're reading. Well, we've talked a lot about the benefits and the potential uses of uh, this kind of quantity of analysis and the application of this research. Um, there does seem to be a lot of resistance to, you know, the application of quantitative analysis to works of art. Have you received any criticism around your research and if it devalues literature or anything like that? Oh, lots. <laughs> There's no end of criticism in the world. Um, no, I think, yes. I mean, I think people, people are resistant to it um, for, for some understandable reasons and, and other reasons that are probably a little more negative. Um, there was a, a sociologist, uh, Pierre Bourdieu, who, who said, you know, the, the, the question we need to be asking ourselves here is, um, in, in whose interest is it to uh, say that um, art is fundamentally unknowable? Um, and so uh, what he was trying to, to point at was that um, oftentimes these statements or these beliefs um, are there to sort of shore up somebody's authority. So if, if this thing is kind of an unknowable object that needs to be venerated, only those people who have special access to it um, uh, can talk about it. 
Uh, and you know, our hope is when you when you add um, this more analytical computational approach to this uh, to these documents to culture and the literature, um, you, you kind of open up the process. You make it a, you know kind of in our view a little more democratic. Um, you make more explicit the questions you're asking, the the data you're looking at, the models you're using. Um, the way you're constructing your analysis, so it puts a lot more of that on the table as as something explicit and and shareable, something we can we can talk about, um, as opposed to saying you know these things are off limits, these are things we can't talk about. Um, and when people say we can't talk about, it, they usually mean only I can talk about it in only this particular way. Um, and so we kind of feel like um, analytics can be a useful way of expanding you know who can have that conversation, what can be talked about. Um, making a little more explicit what people are talking about when they do talk about these things. So, I think it's a it's a really important new direction in thinking about how we how we study art and culture. I actually think there's a very strong public interest in it, um, and and I think you know don't want to just emphasize emphasize the the negative at the end, but also really. Um, confirm with people that, you know, I, I think people sense that this is a really interesting way to think about um, art and literature and culture uh, that that fits within the kind of moment that we're in right now, um, that we're using um, computation to study all sorts of things, how the brain works, how our behavior works, how the universe works, um, and that it makes sense to begin to use um, these resources to study how culture works. Uh, and so for me, it's actually a very exciting moment and one that connects a lot, um, I think, with a, with a sort of general public interest um, uh, about sort of enlivening the humanities and by enlivening literary studies. So for me, it's, it's, a, very, it's a very positive um, experience, actually, in many ways, despite you know, the, the concerns or criticisms that are sometimes raised. Well, it will definitely be interesting to see what else comes out of this. Um, a lot of TechSub and the work you're doing. Uh, where can listeners go to learn more about uh, the projects you're working on? Well, they should follow us. Uh, follow us at our at our blog, which is textlab.org, um, and we we post uh, regular updates uh, there. I also uh, occasionally write for a, a blog um, called Culture After Computation, uh, which also has uh, information about new articles or new essays or or thoughts that we're posting about how how this is beginning to, to change our, our thinking about culture. I'd like to offer a big thank you to Andrew for taking the time to join us this month. You can check out the podcast description for links to his blog so you can learn more about the work you're doing at TechSlab. And if you'd like to learn more about the work BookNet does, you can find us at booknetcanada.ca. We gratefully acknowledge the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Book Fund. And of course, thanks to you for listening.